Welcome to the Real Education Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Bowles, and on this show, I interview remarkable people who think way outside the box in education. To listen to more episodes, learn more about my guests, or become a patron of this ad and sponsor-free show, visit blakebowles.com slash podcast. You can also email me at yours truly at blakebowles.com. Now, on to the show. My guest today is Will Richardson, a former public school educator of 22 years, a longtime education blogger, and the author of four books, most recently, Why School? How Education Must Change When Learning and Information Are Everywhere, which was based on his TEDx talk in Melbourne, Australia, and has become the number one best-selling TED book. Welcome to the podcast, Will. Hey, thanks for having me, Blake. Appreciate it. So your book, Why School?, uh, totally blew me away. It's short, it's readable. It makes a really, I think the strongest case I've read for um, the positive role of technology in school and in education in general. And so we're going to get to questions about that, but I want you to start at the beginning and tell me how your teaching career began. Well, I actually was a journalist out of college and um, I worked for about two years doing that and had the opportunity to go back to school. Um, I always had thought of education as something that I uh, that I thought I wanted to do. I had some really great teachers who motivated me, which is pretty much the story of of most teachers. You know that um, they they had influences in their lives that um, helped them learn in ways that were pretty compelling. So anyway, I went back to school, uh, got my teaching certificate, and I started full time somewhere long, long time ago, now back in like 1983, 84, which was a little bit before technology, obviously before the web, well before the web, but um, was working in a school that was pretty progressive even at that point with trying to get technology into classrooms. And um, I spent 22 years there. I spent 18 years as a classroom teacher um, toward the end of my teaching career. I uh, started using a lot of social tools. I was one of the, probably the first people um, to bring blogs into the classroom and did some writing about that. And that's kind of what got me noticed a little bit, um, just being able to ask some, I think, interesting questions about social media and its role in learning. And uh, then stepped into an administrative job for three years. But um, after that, uh, pretty much made the decision to go out on my own and write and speak and consult with schools. And so that's what I've been doing now for, I can't believe it, but it's almost nine years. It's been a long time since I, I've, uh, I've been in a system. Is there a, a big story behind leaving your administrative role in the school or did, well, were you just tired? No, I wasn't tired. I loved my job, but I really, my brain wasn't at my job and that was the problem. <laughs> I was, you know, uh, really engaged in a lot of conversations online around the future of education or, or, and learning. Um, I started uh, speaking at conferences and it got to the point where I just had to make a decision because I was using just about every vacation day to go out and, uh, you know, speak somewhere or work work somewhere with some teachers. And, um, you know, I just, I just realized that as much as I love being in a school, um, I had a real passion for this work as well and, and just decided to make that step. And, you know, I'm glad I did. I mean, I, I miss kids, um, uh, you know. I'd love to be at some point get back in the classroom with kids and work with them. But uh, this has been really interesting work over the last, like I said, nine years. It's it's just a fascinating time to kind of be 
able to step back from it all and try to see it a little bit more with a little bit more of a meta perspective, if you know what I mean. Um, I certainly uh, talk to a lot of teachers on a regular basis, and I know that in many cases, teaching these days is kind of an onerous job, uh, given all the kind of external requirements and assessments and evaluations and expectations and things like that. But I still look at it from a learning context and just can't imagine there's been a better time to be a learner. And that's really what keeps keeps me motivated. Will, how did, have your views on teaching and learning changed between your first day in the classroom and let's say that that last day as an administrator? And, that, and I think these are two separate questions, your, your views on teaching and your views on learning. Well, I think that they both changed a lot. I'm not sure that they changed um, radically uh, on the, you know, from the time I started in school system to the time I left. But uh, again, over the last you know, few years that I've been doing this work, they changed almost 100%. I mean, I think that teaching is still uh, a really, really important role, uh, a really important profession, and that you know, kids need teachers. Um, and I want my kids with teachers. I say that all the time, and I really mean that. But I think that the role of teaching has just totally changed when you've got a world where all of the knowledge, all of the curriculum is basically you know a couple clicks away. Um, our role or teacher's role becomes not so much to kind of deliver it or to meet it out in terms of the curriculum, but to help kids create their own curriculum, um, find their own classrooms, you know, create, create their own path to whatever it is that they want to learn. And I think, you know, from a learning context, um, I think we're going back. I think eventually, I don't know how quickly it's going to be, but I think we're going back to a time uh, where we, we saw learning in a different way. I love the quote, Seymour Papert, that goes something like, you know, um, all of us have this one side of the brain that thinks school is the most natural way to learn. And then we have the other side of the brain, which know that, which knows that it's absolutely not, you know, we, we know in our own personal practice that we don't learn in the same ways that we learn in school. And, um, I think there's this, I've been writing a lot about this freedom to learn that we now find ourselves with, with the web and these technologies that is going to, I think, force schools, if they're going to remain at all relevant to create cultures and create conditions where learning is the center of the work, not teaching. And I think, again, I mean, no, no disrespect to teachers at all. Um, but I think the reality of the world is now that um, we have to be learners first. We have to focus on learning first. And I think too often schools are still teaching cultures. And I think that that's, uh, that's going to be a problem moving forward. Well, in the book, Why School, you begin with this wonderful story about your 13-year-old son when he discovers Minecraft, and that's the ultra-popular ultra computer game, and he quickly teaches himself everything he needs to know about Minecraft, and you, as a parental authority on technology, quickly become irrelevant. And so my question is, what is it about Minecraft that has this power and appeal to so many young people, and, and is it representative of uh, this greater shift in teaching and learning? Well, I think Minecraft's appeal is that it's constructivist and that um, it's also highly collaborative where kids can work with one another to build things in Minecraft. They can teach one another. My son, when he started playing, was in a Minecraft server that was being housed in Australia. And so were there all sorts of kids who were in there from around the world. Um, I think that that uh, it's it's challenging enough so that kids remain engaged and yet they're motivated to to just build things to build really interesting 
whether those are houses or to mine for certain, um, you know, certain ores or whatever else. Um, I, I think that that uh, the other piece that's interesting about Minecraft is that it was released into the world without any instruction manual. Um, Mojang said basically, here's this really interesting program, figure it out. And so everything that you see around Minecraft, whether it's on YouTube or anywhere else, was all user created. Nothing of, of that stuff was created by anyone um, who created the game itself. Um, and I, I do, I think Minecraft reflects a lot of the potential of learning in the, in the real world now. Um, it, because again, it's, it's, uh, uh, it, it gives kids the ability to connect to, um, other kids, um, other people who share a passion or an interest for whatever it is they're learning about. Um, they can make things, videos, I mean, in the real world or in the virtual world, they make videos and, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, I mean, all of those tools, even though some of the, the things that they create may not be highly complex, they're still creating and sharing on a regular basis. And it's a kind of a mindset and a culture that goes along with that. So, um, I, I, I've, I've read a couple things where people say Minecraft may be the most interesting learning tool of the 21st century thus far. And I, I would tend to agree that, that, uh, we can learn a lot from what our kids are doing in that space. And, uh, it wouldn't be a bad idea to try to figure out how to make our classrooms a little more similar to Minecraft than they are. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's a good concept for a school startup. Um, I played a lot of computer and video games as a kid. And what struck me when somebody showed me Minecraft is that there was, it was not, uh, obviously goal oriented right there was no clear it wasn't like playing a final fantasy role-playing game where you're, you're going through the different levels and you're trying to de defeat the boss it's just here's this world you know go dig something go make something and then kids make these ridiculous uh, you know replicas of the star wars millennium falcon or uh, you know el elaborate worlds and um, but there's nothing there guiding them and, and pointing them in, in that direction well, I think it's interesting. You don't win, you know, in Minecraft. There's there's no winner. So you're, you're what you're just trying to do is you're trying to uh, learn how to get the stuff that you need to build the stuff that you want to build, you know. And that's the motivation. Uh, you're not getting a grade. There's no rubric. <laughs> you know, it's not. I, I sometimes think about what Minecraft might look like in school. You know, the Minecraft textbook. Read chapter one. Do problem number one. Make a tree. Here's the rubric. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, it's it's totally dissimilar, obviously. And um, I don't know. I I think again that that uh, the the key to me. I mean, there's. There's self-directed learning, obviously, which uh, I know you talk a lot about and a lot of people talk about and write about. And I think that that term uh, does a pretty good job of capturing um, what's possible now. But I, I like the term self-organized as well because to me that's the, role of, that's the role that school takes in my kids' lives. They organize it all. Um, so uh, I, I think it's – our kids are going to be responsible for organizing their own learning. Um, they're going to have to figure out again, you know, how to find those resources, how to find those teachers. Um, it's not just going to be uh, so much pursuing the things that they have an interest in. Uh, they're going to have to have those those kind of skills and literacies and dispositions that allow them to to create learning environments on their own. So, um, Minecraft is a way to do that, and I think it's a it's a 
kind of an interesting first step. But certainly um, that constructivist aspect of Minecraft then uh, being used kind of in real world learning, you know, that maybe doesn't have that type of environment built into it. I think, you know, that's that's where kids need to get to and that's where we need to help kids get to and we need to help them do that really well. So let's stay on that theme. And in your book, you write, uh, quote, we aren't suddenly self-directed, organized and literate enough to make sense of all the people and information online or savvy enough to connect and build relationships with others in safe, ethical and effective ways. And then you go on to argue that this is what we need to help kids do nowadays is to figure out how to self-organize and how to separate the, uh, the good from the bad online because there's so much out there. And my question is, do you have any concrete examples of what this looks like to help kids uh, you know, do this sort of self-directed learning using online resources? Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, I think that kids are doing a lot of this on their own and, um, you know, without us. Again, my, my, my own kids' pursuits of the things that they really are interested in is happening pretty much without the aegis of school. Uh, I, I'm not sure their school is actually teaching them much, if anything, around how to do it well. Um, because even the literacies that they're taught in school have a decidedly, you know, analog kind of a, a, a application. And I think that the digital and online applications are much, much more complex. Um, they build on those same types of literacies, but there are nuances that I think uh, are, are difficult for all of us even to kind of figure out. You know, we struggle with what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. You can see this happening all the time in the adult world <laughs> online, you know, with, with grownups. Um, and then so when kids are trying to figure it out, I think um, right now they're doing it without a lot of models, without a lot of, of, of uh, people who are standing over their shoulders saying, yeah, well, think about that. So what are the ramifications of this and how might you find a better source and those types of things? Um, I, I'm not sure that that schools are, like I said, I'm not sure schools are doing it really well, but I do think that there are a number of concrete examples, a number of schools that have embraced that type of, 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 of pedagogy, if you will, and um, that have put digital tools in the hands of learners and given them the agency to use those tools to learn around the, around the things that they care about. And in the process of doing that, then... Um, been, you know, that person next to them, giving them advice, giving them feedback, asking them questions, as my friend Gary Steger says, you know, throwing a, a well-designed problem in their way when they need it, you know, to, to figure something out. And um, that doesn't happen very often, but it is beginning to happen, I think, in more and more places. Um, and certainly in, in lots of classrooms, as you can see many teachers who are sharing their classroom um, contexts on Twitter or in blog posts and, and writing about those types of environments where kids are, are uh, again, getting more agent or being given more agency and autonomy over their learning and then, and then the role of the teacher in the classroom becomes as more of a laboratory for that. You know, how do we do that well rather than a place where there's a predefined preset curriculum to deliver around that? What are a few of those schools that you really that you're a fan of? I know you write about High Tech High in San yeah. Diego in your book. I mean, High Tech High, um, Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia certainly is one. Mount Vernon Presbyterian, uh, which is an independent school outside of Atlanta, um, the uh, Castleview High School, which is doing in Colorado near you, which is doing a very interesting kind of pullout uh, program called the Mosaic 
school, school within a school where uh, kids are are uh, pursuing their own learning. I mean, really, again, giving being given agency and autonomy to um, learn in those ways. Um, and there, like I said, there are lots of classrooms, uh, lots of individual teachers. So uh, finding schools, the, the interesting thing about the Castle View School is that it's one of the few that hasn't been built for that. You know, most of those other examples like High Tech High and Science Leadership Academy and others, um, those schools were constructed with this type of learning in mind. So um, I think it's really difficult for traditional schools to turn the way that they think about learning in the classroom to give kids more ownership over their learning um, because, uh, you know, those traditional narratives run really, really deep and uh, it's it's just a, a, a totally different culture that you need to create in order for that to, stuff to happen well. What would, you, what would you do if you went back into the classroom and you had – you as an educator had the freedom to to run the show just how you wanted. Um, what what content would you teach, and then what would your your methods be? <laughs> well, it, that's an interesting thing that you say too, because it's not just freedom to learn; it's freedom to teach too. I mean, I think that that that's a big piece of it. If schools are going to adjust, if schools are going to stay relevant, if they really are going to prepare kids for the world that they're going to live in, I think again we're going to go back and we're going to have to redefine and re-envision what it means to, to be a teacher and teachers need agency as well. Right now there's, you know, I go to too many places where everybody's reading the same PowerPoint on the same day or reading off of index cards on the same day. Um, so, I mean, if I was, if I got to go back in the classroom, uh, I would, I would try as hard as I could to simply as Albert Einstein famously says, you know, create the conditions under which can, kids can learn. Um, and you know, those conditions require an interest, uh, relevance, passion, um, agency, um, feedback and mentoring and teaching is a big part of that, obviously, but certainly it's more about, um, kids organizing it, kids choosing what it is that they want to learn. And in that mosaic school example that I just gave you, I mean, that's wide open for kids. Um, they can learn, they can pursue whatever they want. There are no subjects there are no disciplines no grades i mean it is about as open as you can can uh imagine actually but you know in most schools where you know you're still going to be teaching in an english class or a math class i still think that there are ways to go into that and say well you know here are the things that the state is requiring us to learn or the the district or whatever else um how do we want to get there you know i think if if teachers can create again an environment or a culture within the classroom that gives kids the sense that they can really pursue what they're interested in, then the teacher's role becomes how do you connect those passions and those interests to the traditional outcomes or to to the the outcomes that the state wants to uh, wants wants kids to have. And those two things aren't mutually exclusive, by the way, but certainly. Um, since we've been doing it for 150 years, there is a well-worn path to quote-unquote success <laughs> in, those, in those ways that makes it difficult, I think, for teachers to think about doing it in a different way. So what I'm hearing, Will, is that if you could run your own show, this is sounding a lot like a, a free school or kind of like a, almost an, an unschooling center because you're letting kids have total agency about what they choose to study and you're it sounds like you're positioning yourself as a mentor, a supporter. Uh, you know, maybe you could think about this problem a different way. 
type guys. Is is that accurate or or no? Yeah, I don't know that I'd go totally to the unschool piece of it because I think we're going to have to and I'm going to have to uh, live under certain realities that make that difficult to do, you know, in a in a quote unquote school space in that type of environment. I think it's easier to do that unschooling thing at home. And I know that there are certain places like Sudbury schools and and others that Summerhill and, you know, others that get pretty close to that, actually. And I know that those kids go to college. I know everyone's shocked when they hear that, <laughs> but the kids who go to yeah. those schools and who pretty much pursue the things that they really care about without a lot of organization, if any organization from the adults, um, you know, they still do really well. Um, so I, I don't know that I'd be quite that far to that side of it, but certainly I would be creating, uh, try, again, trying to create many more conditions, uh, much different cultures in, in my school that would allow teachers and students the freedom to, um, you know, go down those paths that interest them and, um, and yet connect to, I think, some of the very valid things that we want kids to be able to do, uh, that we want kids to be able to, to, uh, to know, um, I, I kind of agree with David Perkins and Roger Shank and others that the scope of the curriculum now is just ridiculous. There's way too much stuff that I think we're requiring kids to know. David Perkins says that 90% of the current curriculum is kind of irrelevant. And I would tend to to get close to that. But I still think there is some core, and I use that word <laughs> very carefully, but yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, there's some there's some foundational knowledge that I think we need to address in schools. Um, and uh, so... I'm probably somewhere in the middle, if if somewhere toward that end, but but not quite all the way there. Well, let's keep going with the Will Richardson <laughs> school thought experiment here. Okay, and because I was really interested in something you wrote about assessment and testing, and you summarized it well in this one sentence: "Stop asking questions on tests that can be answered by a Google search." And that just. I'm a big fan of the website, let me Google that for you. <laughs> and using that in a kind of snarky way to right. send links to friends when they ask me questions, they should have Googled themselves. Right. Um, so if you were going to have assessment or testing in your uh, mythological school, then is this the principle you would operate on? Like only ask really good questions that can't be Googled? I think that uh, in terms of, of the important parts of what we do, in terms of what we want to know that kids can do, um, yeah, we, we need to ask those types of questions and see how kids deal with those types of questions. Um, I, I think it's ridiculous. I, I'm a big fan of open phone tests at this point. Why wouldn't we let our kids bring their phones into exams? You know, um, That's the way they're going to answer all those types of questions when they're not in school. So we should be assessing whether or not they can use their phones to answer the questions that we're asking them. I think that's probably the more important piece of it than, than those you know particular answers themselves. Um, but look, I, it, it's, it's, how do we assess the work that we do, uh, as adults? I mean, how do we assess, uh, all of the things that don't get a grade in our lives? The only times we're graded is in school. So I think we can learn a lot from the ways that we assess outside of school. We, we assess by performance. We assess by how motivated people are and how collaborative they are in solving difficult problems. If they have patience to do that, if, we assess people by how curious they are to, to find problems to solve and to um, look for gaps that may exist and figure out ways of closing those gaps. So, um, 
you know, I, I think that that uh, we have this obsession with uh, only assessing those things that are easily quantifiable. And I think that that's a huge problem. You know, there's a, a quote that I used where it's basically, you know, if we don't assess the things that we value, you know, like like creativity and curiosity and whether or not kids can work with one another and that they're patient problem solvers and all those types of things. If we don't assess things, those things, then we're going to end up valuing the things that we assess. And that's pretty much the state of education in the United States um, today. Uh, we value those things that are easy to measure. And um, more and more as we move forward, those things that are easy to measure are less and less important. Um, it's the, the stuff that's hard to measure, the immeasurable things that are, are vastly more important today um, than knowing the dates of the Civil War or being able to um, you know, crank out some formula to solve some contrived problem on a math examination somewhere. I'm, I'm so with you, Will, and I'm still wondering what does school look like when we start to prioritize uh, these personal characteristics like curiosity, like the ability to ask a smart question, um, instead of things that are easily measurable on tests. Well, it's chaos. And, <laughs> no, I mean, in some ways, it's chaos. You know, and it, it that's what I think makes it so scary for people, is because that type of a school requires us to give up control. Um, right now, we want to control whether we say it or not in education. We want to control just about every piece of it. Uh, we want to control when kids eat lunch. We want to control whether or not they can use their phones. We want to control um, what they wear. You know, all the all those things, all those rules that we have. It's it, the reason that we have all those rules is because if we are going to educate every child in the traditional sense, it has to be efficient and organized. You you, you have to have desks in rows, pretty much. You know, you you have to have a lesson plan. Everybody's got to be articulating you know what comes up next and and what how does that how does that match up with the next course or whatever else um to to all of a sudden say we're not going to organize it well you're going to get it's going to look like chaos but the key is to understand that learning is chaotic you know brian crosby one of my favorite teachers you know his blog his name is learning is messy and it is it's 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 not linear it's not um, it's not everybody doing the same thing on the same day. So, um, again, I think that the, the biggest piece of that is developing a culture or not even developing, but allowing for a culture that embraces a certain amount of chaos, a certain amount of uncertainty, um, a certain amount of not getting to the answer because so much of the work that we do when we learn, we never really do get to an answer. I mean, I've been asking the same question now for nine years. Um, which is driving my professional learning. Uh, I'm not even close to getting to an answer, but yet I'm still motivated. I'm still motivated to learn about it. Um, I'm still motivated to engage in these types of conversations because I keep thinking it's going to change and uh, we need to figure out what that change is going to look like. So, um, yeah, it's 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 not going to look uh, like the traditional school, but yet I think there's a huge value in a school space where kids come together with adults to uh, to grapple with those types of questions and to make sense of the chaos that goes on with learning. I agree. And that's reflected in my work with teenagers who don't go to school. Uh, they still crave, they still hunger for meaningful and quality 
uh, adult contact, mm-hmm. adults who are not their parents, adults who can um, really say, like, listen, you're not you're not getting you're not framing this problem correctly. Like, go back, read this, come back to me once you've figured it out. Mm-hmm. You can give sort of no BS feedback. Um, yeah, if you put a, enough of those together, then and you want to call it a school, I say go for it. Mm-hmm. Let's. Here's a question um, about technology and, and about humans. Uh, what is it that human educators can do that you think digital technologies um, can't do right now and probably will never be able to do? Uh, what is the the special sauce that that a human, a physical human presence has that we'll never be able to replace? Well, I, I think the obvious one is that um, I think only humans can care for one another in ways that. Uh, in an education sense, at least, support the types of learning that we're talking about. I mean, um, you know, no computer is going to help to make sure that a kid is fed, is is dressed, you know, has heat. Um, we're, you know, there's a certain element of of education and schooling, and it's a it's bigger than than just schooling and education. Obviously, it's a societal element that uh, we need to care for kids. And um, I, I'm I don't know. I, I can't see a day when technologies can match the ethic of care um, that humans can display and that that humans can put forth for the kids who are in their charge. So that's a that's a big part of it. And again, I, I think that it's it's about an, a human's ability to create a culture where kids feel safe, where kids feel valued, where kids um, are are motivated and inspired to really think uh, or, or to create in ways that maybe they never thought they could think or create before. Um, I'm not convinced that that technology can do that solely. I, I, I absolutely believe there are times when technology can do that. I think you're seeing that in gaming environments now um, where uh, there are some pretty powerful motivators and some pretty powerful learning environments within games that I think kids are inspired by and um, can learn deeply from. But at the end of the day, um, I, I just believe that there has to be some some human context, some some human touch, if you know what I mean, that um, that uh, that kids can grasp onto and that they uh, they feel that not only are they safe, but that the the work that they're doing and the learning that they're doing has relevance and meaning. Uh, beyond just what's happening, um, you know, in a classroom. There's not an app for that. There's not yeah. a meaning yeah. and relevance app. No, not Sh- yet. Someone should build that. I don't, I don't think they'll be able to build that one. Um, what about I, the the warm, comforting presence app? Well, you know, they have those robots now that you can curl up in their laps and stuff. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that the classroom of the future. Yeah, I, don't, I just don't think that that's going to happen. It's not going to happen. I don't think in my lifetime. And, and um, I, I think I'd be really sad. To see that happen, actually, you know, because uh, that would mean that we have have moved into a very, very kind of different world uh, at that point. Are you familiar with Audrey Waters, who writes the the blog Hack Education? Absolutely, Audrey and I are uh, collaborators on ModernLearners.com. So I, it does, Audrey... does not surprise me. So uh, <laughs> I've seen that she's writing a book about the history of of, of the future of education, yeah. and recently had a wonderful blog post up with these illustrations from magazines from going back to the turn of the century yep. uh, that had these proposed teaching machines that would, you know, the best one was the kids had the caps on their head and, and the professor 
or the teacher was dumping in books of like the history of France right. into this machine that a kid was cranking <laughs> and, and the wires went over to the kid's head. Right. And um, so are, are you saying that you think this, this dream that a lot of people who are in the um, educational technology space right now have of, of creating something, some machine, some technology that will essentially relieve us of the burden of teaching. Do you think that's a false dream? Well, it depends on how you define teaching, right? I mean, if you define teaching as delivering a curriculum, a fairly discrete curriculum that's primarily testable and assessable by some type of, you know, either short answer or multiple choice or whatever type of test, um, I don't have any doubts that technology can probably get us to pass those tests better than humans can. Um, if you sit down and you take an adaptive math, let's say an adaptive algebra program, uh, again, if the goal is to pass the algebra test, I wouldn't doubt that technology can get you to pass that test better than a teacher can. But that's the problem, right? The goal shouldn't be to pass the test. The goal should be to be able to apply algebra in real-life situations as needed and um, in ways that uh, are relevant and make sense. My My son in... Minecraft is applying algebra for a real purpose. I mean, he's in geometry and all sorts of other stuff that he probably doesn't even realize it's algebra and geometry, but he's he's working that stuff out. But he has a reason to do that. You know, it's not just because he's going to take some exam at the end of it. So, um, you know, again, it, it, we, we have a problem, I think. One of the biggest problems we have, I think, is that we don't all agree on what it means to learn, you know, how to define learning. Um, when you go to a lot of schools and they say, Wes, we want to improve student learning, um, <laughs> I think that the way they're defining that could probably be done better with technology than with people. Um, but then you go to other schools, you go to other places where they talk about learning in a much, much different way, in a much different context, where it is about ex exploration, it's about creation, it's about connecting with other people to do real meaningful work in the world. And that's why I don't think technology can can take the place of a teacher. Will, you're a big fan, as I am, of asking young people to create actual work and actual, I call them digital artifacts, um, as a way of demonstrating what they've learned. So write a blog post, create a video, create a social media account, and publish it online and make it discoverable by strangers. And I know that you've shared these ideas with a lot of teachers, a lot of educators. And have you received any pushback on that when you say, you know, don't just give them a homework assignment that only two people will ever see. Put something up on the internet. Oh, sure. I mean, there are a lot of people who uh, fear putting students out there on, online and, and um, you know, have some real concerns about. And, and they should. I mean, they're, they're, we should have concerns when we put kids' work up online. Um, but I don't think that we, uh, I, th I think a lot of those concerns are basically, uh, or, or come out of the, the fact that most of those teachers aren't putting work up online. They don't have experience with it. They don't have a practice around it. Uh, most of, if not all of the really great examples of kids doing interesting, meaningful, important work online comes from classrooms where the teachers are also doing meaningful, interesting, important work online. So um, the more that you have a practice around it, the more you have a context around it, I think the, uh, the, the more that you're willing 
to let kids do that and to encourage kids to do that in ways that are, again, safe and ethical um, and, uh, and, and to make those two things and kind of a priority of the conversations around the work that they do as well. When I try to get teenagers to put things online, I receive a lot of resistance. And this is from you know, the most savvy digital native teenagers out there. And they seem to be afraid of, of what people will think about them. But then they also seem to lack the, the technical skills they feel to write a respectable blog post or, or make a video that people would actually want to watch. Um, have you experienced the same thing? And, and if so, how have you, how have you helped teenagers uh, or, I'm sorry, students of any age uh, get over these blocks? Well, I mean, I look at my own two kids, my own two teenagers, and I know that they're creating a lot of things, a lot of artifacts and putting them up online regularly, um, whether those are, again, like I said, um, Instagram pictures, Snapchats, um, tweets, in some cases, blog posts, videos. Um, I think that uh, the problem comes when we begin to ask them, you know, let's make a Shakespeare video. <laughs> um, they don't really, if they don't really care about Shakespeare, they're not going to care about making a Shakespeare video either. Now, having said that, I think that um, there is some, again, a culture piece of this that um, for most kids who go to school, they very quickly get the idea that the only work that really counts is the work that gets handed into the teacher that gets graded. And to try to convince the kid to do uh, real work for real purposes for real audiences without making it feel contrived um, in the context of you know this very kind of organized classroom that most kids are in, I think it's difficult. So again, I go back to this whole culture piece. If you want kids to do really great things online, you have to create a culture that um, says that that's valued, that that's something that's really important and that um, that's a part of the natural work that we do in schools. We don't just do stuff that hangs up on a classroom wall somewhere or out in the hallway somewhere. We do stuff beginning in first grade that has, um, that, that, uh, you know, answers real questions that attempts to solve real problems, or at least contributes to the knowledge base, creates new knowledge and shares that knowledge in some way. So it's not surprising when you have a lot of kids who don't feel comfortable creating uh, or sharing work that they do in the classroom. That hasn't been the expectation, and they're not sure what that you know what that means outside of classrooms. I don't think they worry about it as much. They just post whatever comes to their mind. On well, yeah, but you know what? It, I'm, I think that we're all um, well. I won't speak for everyone. I, I had a tendency, I think, to uh, to see teenagers, especially, as not thinking about what they did with the stuff that they posted online. I think they think a lot more than than we think um, that we think they do. Um, they make mistakes. Certainly, um, my kids have made mistakes. Luckily, none of them have been catastrophic. But it's certainly, you know, they they are trying. They're they're trying things out as they as they post. But they're they're fairly thoughtful about it. Um, most kids are, and uh, they develop their own kinds of literacies around that without us. Um, and you know, all the research shows that kids actually keep themselves fairly safe even without us. 
you know, we don't give them much chance not to be safe in classrooms because we block it, filter it, we tell them we can't, they can't go online or whatever else. But even outside of classrooms, they do a fairly good job of not putting themselves into positions where they can, you know, be bullied or harmed or whatever else. So um, I think that uh, I think we still can play a big role in helping them do that even better, though. What are your kids' relationship to school? Are they saying why school? Yes. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Uh, it's hard. I mean, you know, they go to my old school, and um, my daughter's going to graduate in June. She can't wait. <laughs> Is that a, a public school? Yeah, it's a public high school okay. uh, in New Jersey. My son, who's a sophomore, is it's it's deadly right now. Um, but he's he's at the age where all the all the surveys show is the worst level of engagement in school. Um, one of the surveys I was just writing about it this morning actually showed thirty seven percent of sophomores are engaged in school. <laughs> so, you know, um, it's really hard right now. Um, if it wasn't for sports, if it wasn't for their their friends, um, I think it'd be even worse. But academically, um, they're not engaged, and I don't. Again, I'm not throwing teachers under the bus here. I think teachers are trying to do as good a job as they can. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, if, if kids don't care about the stuff that you're trying to teach, it's not going to matter what you do. Um, it's, uh, you can, you know, stand on your head metaphorically and try to get kids connected to, uh, to whatever the curriculum is, but it's not going to happen if there's no sense of agency, if there's no culture that says to kids, you can learn whatever you want to learn within the context of, of this particular classroom. Last question, Will. As an advocate for technologies, for social media, what is your own policy with your own kids about technology and screen time? Well, when they were younger, we, uh, we definitely put limits on it. Um, their internet connections went down at 9 o'clock every night. Um, you know, no phones in their bedrooms, um, things like that. As they've grown older, we've kind of loosened up on that a little bit because look, I mean, um, the reality of it is that my kids connect to their peers, to their friends, through the technologies that are in their pockets. And, um, as much as my wife and I are always kind of on the lookout to make sure that there's a balance, and we do have certainly some rules around that, you know, no phones at, at dinner and things like that, kind of, kind of your typical ones. Um, I, I fully understand that the, those technologies are important things in their lives and that uh, um, it's not a bad thing necessarily for them to be connected to their friends, you know, texting and, and things like that as long as there is some balance to it. So we're constantly encouraging our kids and, and helping our kids get outside, play basketball, walk around, you know, bike, uh, go to the gym, um, read books, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, like I said, as they've gotten older, I think we've, we've kind of loosened the grip on that a little bit because uh, they're going to have to make some decisions and they're going to have to figure out where their balance is at some point by themselves. We're not going to be around to mediate that for them much longer. So um, hopefully they can figure it out while, while they're still here um, and, and we can counsel and, and kind of mentor them on that. My guest today has been Will Richardson. Will, thanks for being a guest. My pleasure, Blake. This is the Real Education Podcast. This show is produced with the assistance of Zen Zenith 
who also created the music. For more episodes, visit blakebowles.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.